Mark. Joe, how's it going? Very well, as usual. Excellent. You all set for another episode, episode nine, actually, this time. Is that true? Episode nine? Wow. We're making progress here. It's happening. It's all happening. It is. It is. Who's our guest? Well, I wanted to ask her because she kind of goes by two names, one professionally and one in her real life. But I, I think I'm, I'm safe in saying that uh, her first name, at least, is Melissa. Hello, Melissa. Hi, that is my first name. Thank you very much, Melissa. And my real last name is Ewan Innes, and I write as Melissa Yee. So both of them are fine. Well, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. And I should say, actually, I write uh, science fiction and nonfiction as Melissa Ewan Innes. So it's just the mysteries and romance that I write as Melissa Yee. So it's all good. Whatever you guys want to call me. I got a question right away. How did you decide? Because I'm going through this process right now of trying to figure out my pen name and I'm doing a different kind of writing for this pen name. How did you decide the pen name and how did you figure out what you're going to use with what genre? Well, for me, you and Ennis, it's too long and people don't know how to pronounce it and it's cross-cultural. So Um, And I'm a doctor. So when people cannot pronounce your name after working with you for years, um, it can be convenient if they can't page you overhead. But aside from that, it's not great. So YI are the first letters of the two last names. So it's just relatively easy to make it ye. And I remember the very first time I did it was for a short story for Akashic Books. And they're like, are you sure? Because you already have a track record with Ewan and Ewan Innes. Is this really what you want? And I was like, yes, this is what I want. I'm going to have one simpler name. And, you know, for things like podcasts, it is much easier to have a simple name that people can pronounce. Um, I don't know if that's your issue. Those are my dogs. They approve. (laughs) Pseudonyms if necessary. If necessary, pseudonyms. What are your dog's names? Roxy is our big dog. She's our Rottweiler German Shepherd, we think, because she's a rescue. She's the one who's barking right now. She's 10 years old, and we love her very much. Aww. And then we have a little pandemic puppy, and she's very naughty. She's a mountain cur, and her name is Belle, B-E-L-L. There's no E at the end. Uh, very nice. I got a feeling that uh, we're going to hear a, a little bit from them on this podcast. And I just want to say for the record that uh, dogs are welcome. This is a dog-friendly podcast. That is wonderful, because my dogs will make themselves at home, whether they're welcome or not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Now we uh, we do this thing, which is uh, basically comes from um, laziness on, on on my part, but I actually think it's working. And that is we have the guests introduce themselves so that they can present themselves to our podcast audience the way that they would like to be presented as opposed to how we perceive them. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And you don't warn your guests beforehand. You just spring it on them. Oh yeah. We're, this is also a mean podcast. Okay. In, in several <laughs> it's, okay. it's just seriously unprofessional is what this podcast <laughs> okay, is. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, well, pretty easy for me. Um, Joe and I initially met because I'm a writer. So I love, I, we both write fantasy and science fiction. So that's where we intersect. And I started off writing fantasy and science fiction because my husband suggested to me, he's like, you know what? There are lots of markets to, to write short stories. And I was like, great, because I do love money. Speaking of loving money, I wanted to be able to support myself and my dreams. So I became an emergency doctor. And now we, you know, still with the same guy, you know, my high school sweetheart. We have two kids and two rescue dogs. And I'm still writing. So that was my key that I, that no matter what, I tried to keep on writing at least a little bit every day. 
And, and if I couldn't, then I, you know, eventually learned to let it go. But just to give it a try, so you're always moving ahead. Like one of my friends said about when I was like, oh, I'm doing the couch to 5K and I run very slowly. And she said, forward is a speed. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> the same yeah. thing you're writing, forward is a speed. That's great. I love that. Yeah, like that too. Well, I think you're, you're not un- unusual in the sense that many of us have a day job or in your case, a day and night job. So I don't think that's unusual for many creative people to have something else they do to make a living. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, the arts don't pay the way we would like them to. So if you want to be able to eat and get shelter from the snow, then, you know, it's smart to have some sort of other means of making money. And, you know, even if you were making good money with writing, as people are finding out now, things can change, you know, inflation can go up. So just have more than one way of doing things. I, I always like to have a backup plan myself. But now, Melissa is another one of these people, Mark, that completely impresses me in that I mean, she has obviously a very demanding day job, but she's also extremely successful and prolific when it comes to writing. Well, you know what I do, though? I, I, feel, I feel I should say I believe in financial independence and retiring early. You might have heard of the FIRE movement. And my husband works. So not everybody has that luxury of having a, a working spouse. And when I graduated, he told me that it, that he would carry the load. Like he had told me I could just write and he would support me, but I didn't want that. And then um, when I graduated, I was like, man, I would really like to write, but I spent so long going to school and now I can finally make money. What do you think? And he was like, you went to school a long time so that you could work less and make money. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I've always worked part-time so that I could write. So again, not everybody can do that. And we live in a, the middle of nowhere. So the cost of living is very low. That has let me now turn down on my medicine so that I can do more writing. Now, I, I have to ask, because I, I've sort of experienced this a little bit myself. I've been, you know, I've thought a lot about retiring over the last couple of years. And thinking about it seriously, it finally dawned on me that I actually like what I do. Like I like my day job. I like working for the CBC. And I know that if I were to retire, I would miss it. Would you miss being a doctor? I feel like I've been playing with it for a while. You know, like on my cards, I would introduce myself as a writer and a physician instead of reversing that. Although when I'm on shows, they always put the doctor part first because it's more unusual. And, and you know, once, once a person cutting my hair was like, wow, that's really unusual because people put so much time and years into studying for medicine that usually you would put that first. I guess it just depends how much of it is your identity. And the nice thing is it's a degree. So you'll always be a doctor. I, I miss the people. Like, I'm sure you feel the same way. Like I, I used to work in Cornwall and I still miss some of the people that I work with. You know, they were so fun, like living on the edge. Things were always crazy. You know, So I still talk to them sometimes, but you also learn to make a new life, right? So other things can open up. Like this is the first year that I can do more with NaNoWriMo, the National Novel Writing Month, where you try to write 50,000 words in a month, but I'm not feeling totally burned out while doing it or a lot burned out by doing it because I have more time. Yeah, I find that I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't do that. I tr- I've done it twice and I was successful once at writing my 50,000 words. But yeah, it's in terms of my teaching. So I'm a professor at Western. Oh, nice. It's just, it's like the worst month of the year in terms of trying to do this because it's, it's not just like that's when things get busy in my classes. It's also when like the, the, the committee work ramps up to like 110 or 11, as they say in Spinal Tap. 
Yeah. So it's just like NaNoWriMo is just like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> well, you know, now they have a camp in July and stuff, but they have other times when they do. So the camp is like 10,000 words in July. So that could be more doable. And also you can be a rebel and you set your own. So that's not 50,000 words. It could be 2000 words if you wanted to. But I just think it's nice to feel part of a community because everybody or a lot of people are trying to write at the same time. So you can just encourage each other. Did they have like, you know, write 50,000 words in a decade? Because I could, I could join that. <laughs> I'd be part of that. I am sure that you, that uh, you could do that. There's, honestly, there's a badge. If you're a rebel and you're doing something different, you just award yourself that badge. I'm doing something different. That'd be Nano Rydeco. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the dog approves. <laughs> of course. That's great. So Melissa, you may recall that there's a certain conceit to this uh, podcast. And uh, so I, I think uh, I can probably speak for Mark in this point that we're curious to see what you are bringing to the table in terms of your uh, a piece of art that you would like to talk about. Okay, I said I wanted to talk about A Grim Night by Transcendance. So I don't know how familiar both of you are with immersive theater. No. Is that environmental theater? Is that the same thing? Gosh, I, I, I don't know. See, I don't know enough about it, but I am starting to write theater oh, okay. as well for the last few years. So yeah. I went to see Sleep No More in New York, just on word of mouth and people saying that that was the best show. And I had, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know that they had taken a warehouse and it was like five floors and you were going to have to run after the characters who were mostly reenacting Macbeth, but also the noir film, Rebecca, and that they'd be dancing and they hardly ever spoke or made any noise. So you just had to figure out what was going on. So it was quite bizarre. Like, at one point, like somebody just brought me into a room and closed the door behind me. And there's just these two people swinging light bulbs back and forth and as if they were trying to hit each other and stuff. And I'm like, huh, no idea. And then another time I was like following Macbeth and then they just shut the door and you couldn't go in. And I'd be like, oh, I want to go in there. And they're just like, no. Like, and then they don't want to speak to you. So they're just gesturing, no, you can't go in. So I was like, oh, weird. Like, you know, you, you just don't get half of the experience because you don't know what's going on. And also I was wearing like a, like a ball gown and uh, leather boots. <laughs> to hurt partway through it. And I was like, I'm just going to sit down because this is just too much running around. But it was a really interesting experience. And I like the idea that you piece together the story. Like you're not sitting in a theater watching it on the stage you have to be the agent. And it, and at one point I was like, oh, I'm not going to follow the story. I'm just going to go through this desk and see what they, the props that they have put on it and stuff. And actually somebody came up behind me because they thought I was part of the show. <laughs> but I, I thought this is really cool where, you know, the environment is part of the show. You can follow any actor you want. You know, it's very confusing, but it can be really cool. And so when I heard they were doing that in Toronto with A Grim Night, I was like, okay, that sounds awesome. I love fairy tales. I already know the story. So I didn't, I didn't know Macbeth and Rebecca very well, which made it harder to follow the other one. But I was like, I'm going to try this. And so I booked a train ticket so I could go down to Toronto and just check it out. And they did a spectacular job. I thought it was actually in some ways better than Sleep No More, which some people have seen like dozens of times. So I highly recommend that you try and see it if, if you want to try it at all. And, you know, if you love fairy tales, if you love dance, if you love just trying something new. So, for example, when you go in, I don't know how much people want me to spoil it. But just for example, you pick out an invitation, like they just have a silver tray for you to pick out a random piece of paper. And that tells you where you're going to be at the beginning of the show. But the show doesn't begin right away. 
So you just go in and there's, in this case, they use speech as well, which I preferred because then there's more of a story. So there's a man reading from a book, Mm -hmm. um, reading from a fairy tale book, pretty much. And there are people in antlers just roaming around, (laughs) crawling on the floor, going between your legs, pretending to rub up against you. Like, so for some people, that's uncomfortable, right? But for others, I'm just like, great. Like, I just started filming it. I was like, right on. Keep on going, you antlered people. Like, uh, I thought it was very amusing. Didn't one of them storm Congress? (laughs) I'm sure these dancers did not storm Congress. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the stuff didn't translate. So, for example, I thought one of the stories was Goldilocks and the Three Bears because there's this blonde dancer who's in the middle. And then there are these three fantastic dancers around her when i was reading reviews afterwards that they said that was sleeping beauty i was like oops <laughs> so so hang on so these this is grim fairy tales that they're doing yeah it's interesting all grim fairy tales yeah. okay and and is it dance or theater it is dance but for me the attraction is not so much dance it's that they took over so the one in toronto they took over this building sorry i'd have to check which one it was and there's the main stage which is just the ballroom there's like the balcony overlooking the ballroom. There's a basement that you can't see at all. So you'd have to go down there to see, or sorry, there's an overlooking area, which I didn't use. And there was also a separate room where Cinderella was being kind of trapped by her stepsisters. And so, so things could happen and, th- and on the stairs too, things were happening right up with a dancer. Like they asked me to move because the stepsister needed my chair, you know, like, wow. Just- no, I could see the value in, in having like an emergency medical room doctor attend this because if you've ever read the original grim fairy tales, they get pretty grim. There's a lot of, you know, very macabre and dark. So how grim did these get? They did have, they did reenact the foot cutting, but there wasn't, I, I can tell you, they did not require any medical assistance. So they were, that was good. And you know, well, that must have been very disappointing for you. Oh, no, no, I, I love it. And you know, one of the things I thought was great, just by the way, for example, they had the mother of the stepsisters, you know, in Cinderella, the one who wants the prince to marry her daughters, one of them. That mother was great. She was a fantastic dancer. And she's obviously an older woman. And I was like, I had always wondered, where did the older dancers go? You know, they don't stop dancing, you know, and she was still fantastic. And and afterwards, dogs again. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for clarifying. I was wondering. Not as big a fan. (laughs) I found out that it was Evelyn Hart, who was a famous ballerina. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, she was arresting to watch. So that's the other thing. Like, you know, you can go up to the characters who interest you. I really loved Evil Queen, who's like a non-binary character. Like, fabulous. Like, so strong and hilarious and also evil. You know, so then I was like, I was like, I'm going to go down to the dungeon because I need to see this character more, you know, and then you can do all that. And I, and I really did love Cinderella. And this is still running, is it? Or It was like three nights. But presumably, I, I guess there, there must be more and more of this kind of immersive uh, experience. It is, but it's not super popular here. So like, for example, London, England, it's, there are lots and lots of shows. Like I was just looking the other day because I'm making an immersive piece for 2024 in Ottawa called Terminally Ill. That's based on one of my novels. And I, you know, I, of course I want to see more immersive theater and there's hardly anything. Even I was in New York this spring and I couldn't, there was one show with Andy Warhol where you follow people wearing Andy Warhol wigs around New York. To be honest, it had a a pretty bad review. So I, I didn't end up going to that, but other people went and they really enjoyed it. 
but like I was just saying that in in uh, London, England, like for example, they're redoing the Wizard of Oz with drag queens. I was like, I would go see that. You know, <laughs> the cowboys, so you can be in the Wild West. That does sound fun. <laughs> you know, they have a lot of things going on. It's mostly stories that you already know. And of course, with dance, and you don't have to worry about the text. So my challenge is people have to be able to hear the words so they can solve the mystery. They can't just be dancing away and you figure out who the murderer is. Well, have you read Tamara? That's the one that I remember from theater school. I think it's John Krasank did it in the 80s. And it's the story of an artist. Her name was Tamara. It's based on a true story. And it's at a, a soiree at Denunzio's palace during uh, Mussolini's reign in uh, fascist Italy. And I've seen the script. The script is, and I'm, and I'm for the listeners, <laughs> I, I'm indicating like a four-inch book because there's dialogue that goes on between every character in multiple rooms, and then they move. And then the audience members decide, just like you're saying, who to follow, who do they want to follow in this. And the production I saw was really neat because you had to have a passport and there was like guards at the doors who would like say passport uh, papers, please. And, you know, cause the fascist theme was there and yeah, you, you then have to figure. So what you saw was only part of the story. You only got a glimpse into what was actually happening in the whole, it was kind of like, uh, you know, those, uh, remember those, if you choose to go door, right, go page 65, to choose your own adventure left 60 books. Yeah. It's like, it was like that, but, um, but more literary, obviously. And then, and what was fascinating was like, you were part of the scene almost like you were just, yeah, it's a cool idea. Right. And I love that you can't like, so if you go one time, you can't complete the experience because this choice eliminates that choice. And then you'd have to go back again and then pick that door. But then there were two other doors that you didn't get to choose. So you, there's always something else. And I really love that idea of making people come back again so they can experience something else. Exactly. And, and I was uh, in the, in my seminar, I was like, well, how did the director handle this? Because I think I would have a nervous breakdown if I was trying to block like 12 scenes per moment, because there's just so many different rooms going on and so many different characters is how do you manage that as a director? It's crazy. But I guess a lot of it was improv in the original production, but there was still a script. It seems like humanity is always trying to um, make stories more and more immersive. We're always trying to figure out some way to involve the audience. You know what I mean? Like the, I mean, the choose your own adventure, this immersive theater. And then there's, uh, you know, like uh, murder mystery parties that the guests become part of the murder mystery. Virtual reality games seem to be also heading in that direction. We seem to want to have a desire to be completely lost and immersed in the storytelling experience. Yeah, you're, that's right. Um, actually, this just reminds me of one of my friends who plays video games. And one of the things she loves is just going into the video game and reading books within the video game because that's how she relaxes. But then somebody came, another character in the video game came and punched her in the face. <laughs> how evil is that? This poor, innocent person is just trying to read books in the video game. And someone's punching her, you know. So, of course, there will always be somebody to ruin it. But um, yeah, probably I shouldn't have laughed. That wasn't the appropriate response. Know, was it? You, you kind of don't know what to do when that happens. You know, it's, it's so shocking. I think they're, that they're kind of can go two ways, right? Like you can, can be completely passive and just be like, I like, don't talk to me. Don't make me choose anything. I'm done. I just want to watch. I just want to read like and 100% you take me away. And the other way is 
I want to be an agent of change. I want to make choices. I want to see how I can make things different. And those are totally valid, right? And in different days of the week, you want different things. But I did want to explore the immersive part. So I'm so glad I went to see A Grim Night. And how is the writing going for turning one of your novels into an immersive piece? Working on it, I enjoy it. I guess for me, the writing is not a hard part for me. I like it. I did get feedback. For example, I had a lot of scenes. So they're like, you know, can you just make it two locations or something like that? Because it'll be easier to see. And I'm like, no, I can't. (laughs) So um, we'll we'll see how that goes. I mean, for me, part of the difficulty and part of the budget, right, is if you have to try and mount all the different scenes. And then for me, I'm like, nope, we're not going to spend money on the set. I want the money to go to the performers, you know, because I think it's really wrong for the way that actors don't get paid. And, you know, and the director, et cetera. But we're not going to spend a lot of money on set. It's not going to be a lot of money on costumes. You know, the sound will be pretty basic. We'll, we will try to do lighting because in my case, somebody needs to nearly drown. So to have the water and stuff like that, I just thought it'd be easier to do with light than to try and have a lot of physical things. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is going to be a practice run. So <laughs> I'm not going to worry about it. But what stresses me out is having the people acted out and to have to coordinate the different rooms and to have enough actors because, you know, they're like to try and keep the budget down. They're like, can you double up on the actors? And I'm like, I'm trying. I'm still going to run out of actors. <laughs> you know, I, I'm thinking like, OK, can I just use a recording of a voice here instead of having the actual person there? Because it's just to they, they won't be able to run from here to here in that time. I'll just add, I did a I did a course with Outside the March in Toronto, and they do a ton of immersive stuff. And they have very precise spreadsheets of when you need to be where, at what, at what time, you know, and wearing which costume, et cetera, yeah. and just coordinate the whole thing. And I'm like, wow, that makes my head hurt. There's just going to be two spots where you can break off and we'll have three rooms for each of them. And that's it, because this is just a training wheels version. But still, I like the idea of playing with it. And the, it's for the Undercurrents Festival, and they only have three nights. So even if you came those three nights each time to that play, you would still not be able to see the whole thing. Yeah, you're just going to see a piece of it. Yeah. And yeah. I'm just like, yep, you have to come back again. And if you come back next time, maybe if I do a third breakout room, you still won't be able to see all of it. So I want to bring people back and to make them want more. Will any part of it be filmed for posterity? or? You know, we did a Zoom presentation. And for that one, it was actually sad to me because we just, we just did the room sequentially. So you could see everything with that. And I think now that I know a little bit more about theater, you should film for posterity, at least some of it, because you need that audio and or visual to apply for more grants so you can get money for next time because they want to be able to experience it. They don't want to just read it. They want to be able to feel it and see what the actors are doing with it. And and of course, the set and lighting and stuff, if you're able to do that. So we will film a bit, at least. Again, that's more money. So we'll see what happens. You've written for French theater in the past, haven't you? You enjoy writing for theater. Well, I just started in 2019, so I consider myself a baby. But yes, I did a one-woman show. I am the most unfeeling doctor in the world. Another true tales from the emergency room. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. Did you happen to film that one? I did film that one. And I hadn't really showed people because I was hoping to come to Toronto and stuff. But by the way, like we're on the street is, okay, you're not in Toronto anymore. But Toronto is that they support their local people, but they don't really support people who come from outside. 
And of course, Toronto's expensive. So if you're going to come and not know that you're going to have an audience, eh, like, you know, that it wasn't a big draw. And I also did a spreadsheet showing um, which fringe festivals pay the most per artist. If you just average out the payouts by the number of companies, mm. Toronto wasn't that high. I was going to say London has a fringe festival. London was not bad, I think. Yeah, London, Ontario. It's a pretty thriving little festival. Yeah, the top ones are Edmonton and, and Winnipeg for Canada. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I'll have to get one started down here in, uh, in Moncton, New Brunswick. So there's the Fundy Fringe. There's the Fundy Fringe. I did not know about the Fundy Fringe. Yes, I, I, we went to the Maritimes last summer and I, I did take my kids. They were willing to go to a magic show. So I took them to a magic show. <laughs> and, and I have to say the people were lovely. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, yes, they are Maritimes. I'm trying to, I'm actually sitting here uh, trying to make a joke about putting the fun in Fundy Fringe, but uh, that's, that's the best I could do. <laughs> On their thing, they might have like the Fundy Fringe. They might have already done it for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I'm not too original on my part. And they um they also did streaming as well as live at least at the time because because of COVID so that was great it gave you the option of of what how you can choose how you want to take theater in. Mark, have you ever written for the theater or wanted to? Yeah, the first thing I had professionally produced was the theater. Yeah, I had a, a one act play produced in Prague the year I lived there, and I've actually I've actually had a play in the the St. Catherine Fringe Festival. I can't remember what it's called. And then they took it to the Toronto Fringe Festival afterwards. I was co-writer on that one. Melissa, I have to uh, warn you that uh, Mark likes to slip in references to Prague. Yes, I lived in Prague. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like oh, to just be oh. like, oh yes, that year I lived in Prague and I wrote a play. Yeah, and it, was it was produced. Oh, like yeah. I was like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. It was. It was amazing. I just like there was an ad in. I think it was the Prague. Not the post, the the other one, the other artsy paper. And they're like, we're looking for plays. I'm like, well, I just wrote this play. Okay. I, I didn't even know how to use the mail system at that point. So we just walked it across town to the people who were producing it. And they said, this is fabulous. We're going to do it. So it was great. I got to be in on the, the director's uh, meetings and I got to see some of the rehearsals. We did a couple of rewrites. So it's fun. It's fun. And Joe, what about yourself? I used to belong to a, a company that uh, wrote uh, Murder Mysteries. So we would write, uh, yeah, we would write uh, murder mysteries and we would uh, go to people's houses and we would perform them basically with the, the people who were throwing the party. And then we got into doing it for a, uh, like a pioneer village type of place. We would write them for a group of actors who performed them at this uh, pioneer village. And, uh, and it was all basically participatory and uh, did that for 10 or 15 years. That was a lot of fun. I never knew that. Oh, my God. I, I've done that with my friends, but just the one time I wrote a murder mystery and we did it as an evening. It was really a lot of fun. So what do you do? You have a preference, uh, Melissa, in terms of uh, what you write, whether it's a fiction or for a theater or is it all the same? Yeah, I, I really like writing a variety of things. That makes me happy. Again, I guess because I like money and popularity. You know, if people <laughs> show me that they like it, then I will write more of it. So that's why the Hope C medical thrillers, I've followed that because people do enjoy those. And I have a werewolf book called Wolf Ice. And I have a few passionate people who are like, are you going to keep going with the werewolves? And I was like, I would like to, but more people have to buy the werewolves. 
but I might just for fun, you know, like in romance, they call it the book of the heart. And to tell you the truth, I don't watch my numbers enough mm-hmm. to tell you whether or not like werewolves are taking off. I do find it gratifying when people buy them. If they buy them for me in person, obviously I notice. <laughs> and recently I did sell a few of them and still get, you know, it's always funny to get the reaction. Like, you know, that one has a bare chested man on the cover. And one of the women who bought it showed it to somebody else and who was like, ooh, that's too sexy. I don't like that. <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> you know she was not shamed at all because um you know women and romance yeah. writers and readers are often shamed which is ridiculous it's like the biggest selling genre in the world but I, I was just like yeah you go you know like she she was just like no this is what i'm reading and tough for you wow see that's where i've gone wrong i need to have a bare-chested man on the cover of my books i think i would do so much better well, Joe, like you, you've got yourself, you've got Mark, you know, you can. Oh boy. No, no. We want actual sales, Melissa. We want people to buy the book, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, it might work in Mark's case, but yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I want to say something, but I don't know if it sounds rude, but there, but I just want to say that reverse catfishing is a thing also, if that's what you wanted. So because um, on dating platforms, I read that it's so fake that now people are rebelling against it and they're putting on like unattractive photos or ridiculous photos where they're making faces or whatever. It just it just catches your eye because it's not the same plastic kind of look. So honestly, if you guys wanted to do something different. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be offended by that, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I really can't help but think that your dog is commenting editorially on the conversation. <laughs> well, my husband's inside now, so I don't know why she's barking, actually. So I guess they must be the bare-chested men. So that, that <laughs> you got one, one vote, anyway. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to take the conversation in a slightly more surreal direction, but I think it's completely in line with the topic that you've introduced, which is the participatory theatrical or storytelling experience and the notion that the universe that we live in is actually a a hologram and may in fact actually be itself some kind of a participatory Mm -hmm. experience. Have you guys heard of that? And what do you think of that? According to uh, my metaphysics professor, it's a 20% chance that we live in a simulation. You know, as long as we're all, you know, you're just doing the best job you can in your simulation, then I don't see any problem with it. Now, would it be better if we all kind of acknowledge that that was actually the case and then we could go about our lives knowing that it's just some kind of a holographic simulation or is it better to assume that it's not and just be unaware or unconscious of the possibility? So as a physician, I feel like there's just too much uh, people living there, like making up reality and spreading lies about like instead of following science and logic so i would prefer just to say hey in this reality as well as we can tell we need oxygen we need trees we need fresh water we need to work on having all these things and not pretend that well to me the second coming or whatever is going to save you just work on this reality as best you can is my advice yeah, and I would I would I would second that because even if it is a simulation, it's for us indistinguishable from reality. So just because it's a simulation doesn't mean it's not reality for us because all of those physical laws that Melissa just mentioned exist. We can't escape them. So we live in a reality. I think that's a very good point. But I guess the one thing that I would add to that is that if there is that, say, you know, 20% possibility that it is a hologram or some kind of a simulation, maybe that helps us inject a little spirit of fun into the proceedings. Like, obviously, we still have to take it seriously to Melissa's point. 
that we have to take seriously the environment and uh, and not harming people and you know trying to work for the, the the benefit of us all but at the same time you know attempting to approach it all positively with a spirit of fun if we can yeah and you know if you can live your life lightly and with a sense of fun i always think that's a good idea in the end the like re- regardless we all agree death is coming and you know reality is going to un- end either way so if you can let go of that and just be like okay i just want to i just want to point out that you've now taken all the fun out of it <laughs> by, by reminding us that death is coming <laughs> Death is coming. Yeah, I, I I don't know if if you can choose, Joe. Like it's a little bit like Milan Kundera's book. You know, it's either we can choose the lightness. We can't really. We either live the lightness or we don't. But we can choose our own adventure in this reality. That is true. And I think that's true. Even if it's not a, a simulation, we can choose our own adventure. Yes, in our minds. Yeah. Regardless, if it's reality of a simulation, you're always choosing your own adventure. Yeah. I just mean like instead of grasping, like that's a concept in Buddhism, right? You you just hold it lightly. Exactly. In the end, everything is impermanent, and just enjoy yourself as best you can. Mm-hmm. So, in the spirit of uh, choosing your own adventure, Melissa, you said that you're writing this immersive theatrical experience. What else are you working on coming up? The seven deadly sins. What, trying the seven deadly sins or? Hope is attacking the seven deadly sins at the hospital. So, I've done Wrath, that's coming out in February. But uh, I, I but I have six other sins. <laughs> so, for this NaNoWriMo, I'm tackling five of them simultaneously and the glee with which you were tackling these sins i must say is quite tangible i was i was amazed at how excited you got by seven (laughs) deadly sins (laughs) it's great yeah well for me i'm just like i'm like but which one comes next like do i do sloth do i do lust you know are people going to again be turned off by the bare-chested men like what are we going to do i'm going to recommend gluttony go for the gluttony I do love gluttony. So I have written the beginning of that. And for that one, I was a good excuse. I went to, uh, this is another good experience. I went to Montreal. You know, there's a restaurant there that's completely dark. Oh yeah. I've heard about, I'd love to do that someday. Yeah. So you go in and the servers are visually impaired. So they're perfectly fine moving around in, in the blackness. And you're like, where am I going? What am I eating? <laughs> like, Oh wow. Where do I sit? Where's my stuff? Yeah. So I, I'd always wanted to go. So finally, I'm just like, well, I'm doing gluttony. This is a good excuse to go to a restaurant and be gluttonous, but also in a, in a different environment. Well, that does sound like fun. Any final thoughts, other of you, on participatory experiences, uh, Seven Deadly Sins? Oh, Joe, I was going to say that for you, you know, your time travel book would actually be an interesting participatory experience because they could go to the different timelines where people could visit. So you could turn that into an immersive experience if you wanted to. I may have to invent the the actual time machine to really make it participatory for people. <laughs> that would be awesome. Like you would definitely get a big audience if you did that. Yeah. You'd have some other problems though, Joe, I think. Uh, <laughs> CIA, NSA. <laughs> yes, perhaps. Okay. Well, yes, I'll get right on that. Thank you, Melissa. Yes, while you're writing your your 50,000 words in the decade and you're inventing a time machine and you're writing your immersive theater piece and you're still working for the CBC because you love it, you know, sure, why not? Yeah, it's not a time machine that I require. It's a time expansion machine, I think, you know, to give me like an extra day or two. You need a Groundhog Day machine. You know what? If you did that, you would be so rich. Yeah, just so you could just use 
a day to learn whatever you needed to learn. Would it reset? Would it bring you back to like that you were in the same place at the beginning? Then- yeah, in the movie, he he spent well, however many years in the one day, and then at the end, he finally got out of it and he came back to the same day. So only a day had passed. Yeah, we don't know if he actually like remember he became like a um, an expert uh, jazz pianist. You know, did he retain those abilities? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that was the implication. Yeah, I actually never saw the movie. So, oh, okay. Well, okay. There's your uh, your homework, uh, Melissa. You need to go and see uh, Groundhog Day. I can't. I can't believe, frankly, that that that's probably the most astonishing revelation uh, of this this podcast. You know what? I had never seen the movie Seven. I was going to ask you about Seven because it's like that's so. Yeah. yeah. I was going to Wrath. Come on. What's what about Wrath? Are you going to do Wrath? <laughs> I've never actually seen the movie Seven either. Okay, so it can be your homework. You can see the movie Seven. Now we just have to give Mark homework. Um, to come up with a different city than Prague to mention every podcast. Sure, okay, I can do that. <laughs> All right, okay. Melissa, I want to thank you very much for coming on this uh, this podcast and putting up with our foolishness. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you do build that time expansion machine. <laughs> well, that's a catch-22 because in order to actually be able to build the time expansion machine, I need to have the time expansion machine. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. It's a causal loop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the multiverse, Joe, can help build the time machine, the expansion machine for you. Well, that just happens to be Mark's expertise. So that works out very well. I'll get Alpha Max working on that right away. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you, Melissa. You've been listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity. Talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them. And you're probably wondering, how can I support this podcast? I am wondering, Joe, how can I support this podcast? I mean, apart from being on it. There's no advertisements in this podcast. There's no tip jars. There's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that. But there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to are artists of some description and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy and if you enjoyed it maybe you could review it for them oh yeah but maybe us too yeah you know what us too it wouldn't hurt they could buy our books and how do they find us recreative.ca don't forget the hyphen there's a hyphen in there re hyphen creative i took your line sorry well because i stole your line So yes, re-creative.ca. Jinx. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word. <laughs>